0: We're beginning today a series of studies from the book of Colossians. It's in the New Testament. You'll find 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you find the book of Hebrews, go to the left a little bit, and you'll find the book of Colossians. Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul, and he begins most of his letters with You know, a greeting or a salutation. And my tendency has always been to skip over that and just go straight into the meat of the epistle. But as I was working on this series, it hit me that if we're really going to understand the book of Colossians, we need to to stop and begin at the beginning and kind of do an introductory overview of the book of Colossians from the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So we're gonna use those two verses as the starting point for this study through the book of Colossians. And there's some interesting truths that come out of these verses and come out of understanding why the book of Colossians was written. Anytime that you're reading a book of the Bible, it's good to kind of know who wrote it, who are they writing to, why are they writing it. It it just makes the book come alive if you read it in the context in which it was written and not just kind of isolated out by itself. So I'm going to give you kind of a classroom today on why the book of Colossians was written, where Paul was when he wrote it, and so on, and try to draw some practical lessons for us today. Paul wrote this book of Colossians and three other books of the New Testament during his two-year house arrest in Rome. Toward the end of his life, you can read about it in Acts chapter 28. He is in prison. He is allowed to stay in his rented house, but he is chained to a guard 24 hours a day. While he's there for those two years in Rome, he writes four books of the Bible that we call the prison epistles because he writes them while he's in prison. And those prison epistles are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So he's in house arrest at Rome. He's in his own house but he's chained to a guard 24 hours a day. He's allowed visitors, he's allowed to, you know, kind of I guess open the door or open the window and preach and verse 31 of Acts 28 says that he preached the gospel boldly. And from what we know of Roman house arrest, we know that he's chained to a guard 24 hours a day with a length of chain and what that meant was you couldn't get away from him. I saw an article on this, uh, and it was entitled, Who Was Chained to Whom? You know, Because it wasn't like Paul was chained to the guard. It was like the guard was chained to Paul. And they went through a rotation of shifts. And so over those two years, we don't know how many different guards were assigned to be with Paul. But they are chained to him, and they can't get away from him while he's preaching, while he's receiving visitors, while he's having discussions with his brothers in the faith, while he's dictating what we now call the prison epistles, the guards are a captive audience. And that leads me to the first lesson of this book, and that is this. God can use you whatever your circumstance. God can use you whatever your circumstance. We just finished studying Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, taken from their home, taken from their nation, put in a foreign land, no temple to worship at, no prophet to talk to, and we learned how you can be faithful to God in tough situations. Paul, in house arrest in Rome, writes the prison epistles and demonstrates to us God can use you whatever your circumstance. Philippians, again, is one of those books. And in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, his house imprisonment, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And as he's wrapping up Philippians in chapter 4, speaking of this time in his life, he says, all of God's people here in Rome send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. So here is Paul, under house arrest, chained to guards, And as a result of that, all through the palace guard, all through Caesar's household, the gospel has been preached. It was like Paul says, oh, you think you're going to imprison me? Go ahead, chain a guard to me. Before long, he'll be a Christian too. Bring another one in and before long, he'll be a Christian too. I preached a message on that one time and asked this question. If somebody were chained to me 24 hours a day, would they become a Christian? You know, Or would they run the other way? But what a testimony to Paul, and what a testimony to the fact that God can use you wherever you are, whatever your circumstance, because God is greater than your circumstances. We've had a chance to learn that over this last year. God is greater than than our circumstances. Whatever you're going through, whatever challenge you're facing, whatever weakness you're dealing with, whatever battle the devil is attacking you with, God is greater than your circumstances, and he can use you wherever you are. And your response is, yeah, but I'm not the Apostle Paul. Well, neither was John Bunyan. John Bunyan was a poor lay minister who was arrested for preaching the gospel, imprisoned for 12 years, and while he was there, he wrote a little book you may have heard of called The Pilgrim's Progress. God can use you wherever you are. Again, we just studied Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who in a heathen country are promoted to political leadership because of their faithfulness to God. God can use you whatever your circumstance. The second lesson as we get into the book of Colossians is to beware of false teachers. Now, Paul doesn't say, and now I'm going to talk to you about the error in your church, but just through this book, we find him attacking issues and challenges that the church at Colossae was facing. Now, this church was a little different because Paul himself did not actually found this church. You know, he founded Philippian, the church at Philippi. He founded the church at Ephesus. He did not found the church at Colossae. If you remember from the book of Acts, when Paul got to Ephesus, he ended up staying there for two years, preaching the gospel. And the scripture says that during those two years, the gospel spread through that whole region. And Colossae was 80 to 100 miles away from Ephesus in that region. Most scholars believe that a man named Epaphras, who you'll run across in the book of Colossians, had come to Ephesus during Paul's two years there, had met Paul, had become a convert, and then returned home to Colossae and started the church. There is another name you're familiar with that was also at Colossae, Philemon. And some think the church met at Philemon's house. Some think the church met at Epaphras' house. But this was a church that was started not by Paul himself directly, but as an outgrowth of his ministry in Ephesus. And it's not been that many years since the church was founded, but even in this short period of time, false teachers had begun to infiltrate the church. And Epaphras, the leader at the church at Colossae, knew he needed help. And so he went to Rome to meet Paul and say, okay, brother, what do I do about this error that's come into the church? And Paul, in response to Epaphras' concern, writes this letter to the church at Colossae, the book we know as Colossians. Now in a word, the error at Colossae was Gnosticism. The G is silent. It comes from the word gnosis in the Greek language, which means knowledge. And when we study the first century Gnostics, we learn not only what they believe; we understand that they're still with us today. They don't call themselves Gnostics, but they're still around today and you can highlight the the four or five main teachings that were erroneous in the church at Colossae in the following ways. The first one basically sums up as you're ignorant and we know more and better than you. You ever run across anybody like that? <laughs> you ever been on social media? You ever watch the news, you know? That that that's that is a pervasive attitude especially toward Christians in our day and age. You're ignorant. We know more than you do. We know better than you do. So just shut up and do what we say. You know, there's just a whole lot of that out in the secular world today. As I was reflecting on that, I I was reminded that this kind of vitriol really came out from behind the shadows after the presidential election of 2004, when George Bush was re-elected. And the the media could not understand how in the world this happened. And they started to try to figure it out, and they realized that one of the reasons it happened was because the evangelical Christians got behind George Bush. And Gary Wills, among others, and I've got a file because I kept the articles. Um, This is not somebody said this. This This is the column the man wrote. I've read it. Gary Wills wrote a column, and in, in it he said this, which raises the question, can a people that believes more fervently in the virgin birth than in evolution still be called an enlightened nation? You know, and we've heard it. These people clinging to their Bibles, and, you know, we, we've heard that that intolerance of, you're ignorant, we know more than you, we know better than you, but that comes into the church as well. And what was happening in the church at Colossae was there were a group of Gnostics called the Essenes, and they said, we know secret religious doctrine, and the only way for you to get to God is to go through our secret rituals and our routines and learn the secrets that way. Now we stop and think about that and we realize, you know, that's still often communicated in the church today. Come learn from us. You know, we know truth other churches don't. We have revelation other churches don't. You come, you know, learn the secrets from us. You know, yes, we believe in Jesus, but but we've got something more. And, And that spirit is still alive in some circles of the church world today. The second element of Gnosticism was that God was not the creator. A question the Gnostics asked was this. Why is there evil in the world if the creation was made by a holy God? (laughs) People have asked you that, haven't they? How come there's evil in the world if God is a good God? And the people that ask you that Think they're the first person that ever thought of that question. That question has been asked and answered by Christianity for generations. But the Gnostics said, that, How can there be evil in the world if God is a holy God? And so, what they, the conclusion they reached was matter, flesh, material is evil. And since it's evil, God can't create it. So, what they said was there was a series of what they called emanations coming out from God, each of them less God and more evil, until there finally was one that was evil enough that they could create the world. But God was not the creator. If you read 2 Peter, Peter says that in the last days, people will deny that God is the creator. Gnosticism is still around God is not the creator, they say. Third, Gnosticism said, and again, it just follows logically, that if matter, flesh, material is evil, then Christ can't be God in a body because the body's evil. And so Christ cannot be God in a body. And they taught that either Jesus wasn't human or else he wasn't really the son of God. One of them actually said that when Jesus walked on this earth, he left no footprints because he really wasn't human. The, the bottom line was they said Jesus was not God in a body. They denied what we call the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas. And if Jesus is not God in a body, you remember my Christmas sermons, if it's not true, then Easter doesn't matter. Nothing else matters because if Jesus is not God's son, The word became flesh and lived among us. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. If that's not true, then the whole foundation of our faith is gone. And then they said, and I alluded to this a few minutes ago, Christ isn't enough. If you really want to know God, it's Christ plus the secret knowledge that we have the secret revelation that we have. If you will follow these rules and regulations, you will gain this secret knowledge. And as we go through the book of Colossians, we'll learn that a lot of these so-called secret rituals and rites came out of uh, a a warped view of Judaism. And, And they said, Jesus is good, but he's not enough. You need what we know also. And what that led to, this idea, and you can probably figure it out. If you think that the spirit is good and matter, material, the flesh is evil, then you understand you're going to have an unbalanced approach to life because, and I'm going to say this probably repeatedly over the next five minutes or so, doctrine determines lifestyle. Doctrine, that's what you believe, determines lifestyle, how you live. See, if matter, the flesh, is evil, then there were two schools among the Gnostics. One of them said, what we've got to do is deny the flesh altogether. And they were the ascetics, the ones who would not allow any creature comforts. They would, sometimes they went to the extremes, of actually you know, beating their own bodies and stuff as a way of recognizing that this flesh is evil, only the spirit is good, And they became ascetic, denying themselves any kind of pleasure. On the other hand, there were those who said, huh, the spirit is good and that's what counts. The flesh is evil and that doesn't count. So I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And they called that antinomianism, which means anti-law. And it was basically, I'm just going to live whatever I want to, however I want to live. I'm going to do whatever it is I want to do because the flesh is evil anyway. So what? Just live it up. You know, eat, drink, and be merry. That philosophy is still very much, it may not come from the idea that flesh is evil, but the bottom line of eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow we may die, is certainly in our society today. Because what you believe will determine how you live. Warren Wiersbe, in his book on Colossians, writes this, Do we have any of this heresy today? Yes, we do, and it's just as deceptive and dangerous. When we make Jesus Christ and the Christian revelation only part of a total religious system or philosophy, we cease to give him the preeminence. When we strive for spiritual perfection or spiritual fullness, by means of formulas, or disciplines, or rituals, we go backward instead of forward. In all things, he, Christ, must have the preeminence. And that's a quote from the book of Colossians, and we'll spend a whole week on that, uh, probably Palm Sunday. The verse that says, in all things, he might have the preeminence. If you read the book of Colossians in one sitting, And I suggest that maybe you do that. I suggested it to you last week. I'll suggest it to you again this week. It's a short book. You can read it in just a few minutes. But if you read it in one setting, you'll understand that the main theme is Christ. It's all about him. And this is why. Because the heresy in the Colossian church was denying who Christ was. What you believe will determine how you live theology, doctrine, what we believe isn't some kind of theoretical game. It isn't something that needs to be isolated to a seminary somewhere. It's the foundation for how you live your daily life. What you believe about God will determine how you live. What you believe about eternity will determine how you live and who God is and who Christ is and what God is doing through the Holy Spirit in our lives today directly impact how we live our lives. So if you take nothing more from this this morning, please remember those three words. Doctrine determines lifestyle. It does matter what you believe because it's going to impact how you live. The third thing we learn from this introduction to Colossians is to remember who you are in Christ. Paul begins this book, Paul, an apostle by the will of God. He hadn't chosen it. God chose him to be an apostle. Now, there are times in Paul's writings when he talks about his apostleship and he goes into a lot of detail. But the church at Colossae was primarily made up of Gentiles. And so they're wondering, who is this Paul guy? And so he's just telling them, this is who I am, and I'm an apostle by the will of God. And then in verse 2, he tells us who we are. He says, you are holy and faithful. That's a good character reference, isn't it? Holy. That word has two meanings, pure, and it means to be set apart for God. And the word faithful, you know, means dependable and true to the faith. As he's writing to a church where heresy has come in, he is basically commending those who are continuing to be faithful to the truth of God's word. Holy and faithful. Two good things to be in in our life for God. The fourth lesson, and it comes not only from these couple of verses, but through the book of Colossians, is we need each other. There are several names, and we'll study them as we get to them in the book of Colossians, of people that are around Paul during this time. He is in house arrest in Rome, but he's allowed visitors. So he's there, and he tells us in the first verse that Timothy is there. You may remember that Timothy began as a protege of the apostle Paul. Paul was Uh, impressed with him as a young man, and Timothy started to just follow Paul along and be a part of Paul's team. At some point, Paul called him my son in the faith. Now he calls him our brother. Timothy has become an integral part of Paul's team. In verse 7 is the man I mentioned to you who probably started the church at Colossae, Epaphras. You will also find as you read through the book of Colossians, and by the name. By the way, if you're looking for uh, unusual names for your grandkids or your great-grandkids, here's a couple for you. Tychicus Tychicus would be a good name that would set your your, your child apart. Uh, they'd hate you for it, but you know it's a, it's a unique name. He is first mentioned in Acts chapter 20, and Tychicus is one uh, again of one of those members of Paul's traveling band and he's there in Rome with Paul and then there's onesimus he mentions him onesimus if that name kind of rings a faint bell it's from the book of philemon philemon is one of the leaders of the church at colossae he had a slave named onesimus who ran away from him and ran to rome and in the providence of god met paul became a convert and spent some time in Rome helping Paul out. Uh, Paul said that he had been helpful to him. Some think that, that uh, Onesimus might have been the guy that you know went out and got his groceries and, and ran errands for him and those kind of things to, to be a practical help to him. Well, Paul, again, remember Philemon is one of the, the letters that Paul writes during this time. Paul writes this to Philemon saying, I'm sending Onesimus back to you Please forgive him for running away and accept him as a brother. Now, it would not have been safe for Paul to send Anissimus back by himself because one of the um, occupations of that day were slave hunters who were like bounty hunters. And if your slave ran away, they would go get them, and they would be rough with them and torture them all the way back home. And so Paul wanted to protect Onesimus, and so Tychicus, your favorite name again, uh, that's what you'll think of all week long. What we'll the preacher preach on Sunday? Tychicus. What does that mean? Don't know, but he said it over and over. <laughs> but, but Tychicus was sent to be with Onesimus to protect him on his way back to Philemon. And most believe that Tychicus was actually the one who carried these letters. He, he leaves Paul in Rome with the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, and the book of Philemon with him, and they travel back to Ephesus, drop off the letter to the Ephesians, and then go back home to Colossae, drop off the book of Colossians, and goes to Philemon and gives him the book of Philemon. Well, why didn't he send Epaphras back to Colossae, where he was from? Well, in Philemon 23, Paul says that Epaphras was a fellow prisoner. So apparently what happened is Epaphras goes back to Rome to get Paul's advice on how to handle the challenge at Colossae and at some point, for some reason, probably preaching, gets arrested along with Paul. Now, the point of giving you these names is not to confuse you. There will not be a test. <laughs> the purpose of giving you these names is to help us see that God provided, even the Apostle Paul, a team of encouragers around him. Which is why I say, the lesson is, we need each other. Even the Apostle Paul needed people with him. He talks in other letters about what an encouragement certain people had been to him. We need each other. Each of these men had different roles to play. They had different responsibilities, but each of them were part of God's team to minister alongside the Apostle Paul. And that leads me to make two applications for us today. The first is we need each other and we need people around us. Uh, and, and that's been one of the challenges, hasn't it, of the last year of, of the isolation, of, of not being able to just sit in a room face to face with a group of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I I think even those of us who are kind of introvertish miss that by now. It's like, it'd be so nice to be able to get together, you know, with a bunch of people and, and have fellowship together. Uh, we need each other and, and, you know, the internet's great. YouTube is great. You know, I, I've listened to a lot of preachers over the last year. Um, and it's good that we're able to be together, socially distanced and in a small group. But at least there's encouragement that comes. It's hard to believe that a year ago we weren't even able to do this. But the second thing is, not only do we need people around us, we need to be around them. You know, We need to be an encourager. We need to be somebody that lifts other people up. When, when God brings people into your life, it may well be that you're supposed to be there to be an encourager, to uplift, to strengthen, to pray for them, just as this group of men were gathered around the Apostle Paul. It's a two-way street. You need my encouragement, I need your encouragement. And that's the way the body of Christ works. And then there's this great phrase in, in the second verse. He talks about being in Colossae and in Christ. We are in Christ, but we live in this world. That's, a, that's the tension of the Christian life, isn't it? We are in our Colossae and we are in Christ. William Barclay put it like this. A Christian always moves in two spheres... He's in a certain place in this world, but he's also in Christ. He lives in two dimensions. He lives in this world, whose duties he does not treat lightly, but above and beyond that, he lives in Christ. In this world, he may move from place to place, but wherever he is, he's in Christ. That's why outward circumstances make little difference to the Christian. His peace and his joy are not dependent on these outward circumstances. That's why he will do any job with all his heart. It may be menial, unpleasant, painful. It may be far less distinguished than he might expect to have. Its rewards may be small and its praise non-existent. Nevertheless, the Christian will do it diligently, uncomplainingly, and cheerfully, Ouch. <laughs> right, because he is in Christ and he does all things as to the Lord we are all in our own Colossae but we are all in Christ and it is Christ who sets the tone of our living that's convicting but that's the tension of the Christian life being in this world and being in Christ We each have our own Colossae, where you live, where you work, that's our Colossae. But we are always in Christ, and it's all about our focus on him and being in him. That's a challenge. And then Paul's familiar greeting to the saints. Grace and peace to you. From God the Father. If you read Paul's letters, he almost always greets people with grace and peace. And grace always comes before peace, because that's the order. God's grace always comes before his peace. A lot of people try to get God's peace, but they've never experienced God's grace. And his grace always comes first. That's that unmerited favor, we call it. We sang, I think last week, the songs about God's amazing grace. Grace greater than our sin. It's all of the good things we receive from God. Not only our salvation, but also strength for daily living. The stamina for living this life. God's grace then leads to his peace. And I wondered what that word peace means means. So I studied the word that Paul used there. It does not mean the absence of trouble. You know, a lot of times we think peace means everything's going smoothly. Well, (laughs) good luck with that, right? Peace does not mean the absence of trouble. The word for peace means a sense of well-being that comes from a sense of the presence of God. It's that God is with me, so I have his peace. On the outside, everything's falling apart, but inside, I've got his peace. And if you expand the meaning of the word, it can mean to be set as one. And and what that means is it's the opposite of being torn apart. (laughs) You ever been torn apart? You ever ask people, ask you how you do, say, I'm just falling apart? And, and sometimes life does that to us. And we face situations that tear us apart. God's grace and his peace will put us back together. To set everything together as one. And you can have that peace in the midst of the most serious storms of your life. As we stay focused on Christ. It's all about him. It's all about our focus on him. It's all about our position in him, and he will give us the strength to face the challenges of our lives. So that's the background from which Paul is going to write this book of Colossians. And I believe that over the next several weeks, we'll be kind of taking it apart paragraph by paragraph. I pray that it's a blessing to us as we focus in on our relationship to Christ you could go through the book of Colossians and and just circle the word in Christ that he uses over and over and over and over and we need to remember that it, it, it's the longer you live the Christian life Satan will tempt you to think like the Gnostics there, there's there's got to be something more than Christ you know there's got to be some kind of other thing too no it's it's about Jesus. And it's about his focus, our focus on him and living our life to please him, to realizing our position is in him. That's the truth. The first day you're a follower of Christ, that's the truth. The day you die and go to heaven, it's in him. And, and Lord willing, that's what we'll be focusing on these next few weeks. I pray it will bless be a blessing to each of us um, as we learn from this book. What I want you to take from today is focus on God's grace because it comes before his peace and be an encourager. The people that you run into through your day, be somebody that lifts them up, somebody that encourages them, somebody that draws them closer to Christ. Father, we're living in challenging times. Uh, I guess preachers have probably said that from the time they were first preachers, but we are living in challenging times. And I pray that you would help us to keep our focus on you. Um, we're, we're, we're weary, Lord, of all of the the mandates and all of the science that contradicts the science from yesterday and will be contradicted by the science tomorrow, and, and we're just worn out. And, and we need you, Father, to refresh us, and we know that that refreshment will come as we rediscover our relationship to you, and as we rediscover who you want to be to us. So help us, Father to realize we don't need some new secret formula. We just need to stay focused on Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. May we do it, Father. And regardless of the circumstance in which we find ourselves, may we allow you to use us to your glory. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine on you and give you his peace. Now and evermore. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being here today. God bless you. You're dismissed.